So, Jay, I'm trying to remember, what was it that you said Psylocke did before going looking for Angel? She made an appearance in the Kiss series, Miles. Kiss like the band? Kiss like the band. Okay, what was Psylocke doing in a Kiss comic? I have no idea. Ninja stuff, probably? And more to the point, what was Kiss doing in the Marvel Universe? Were they even in the Marvel Universe? Oh, yeah, totally. 616. And what, there are rock bands there? There are a bunch of disaffected youths who gain cosmic identities thanks to a magic box. How do they get a magic box? Do they just find it? Oh no, a wizard gives it to them. Sure, why not? To keep it away from Doctor Doom. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 364 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to another miniseries, because as we've mentioned, the 90s were just lousy with them. Not that they're lousy, I mean, a lot of them are pretty good. This miniseries wall-to-wall. Wall-to-wall. An entire addition to your house built purely of miniseries, like that one addition to his house that Pee-wee built out of fruitcakes in the Pee-wee's Playhouse Christmas special that was uh, surprisingly good. Just mocking your long boxes and their length. Oh, man. And in that Pee-wee Herman voice, which I will not even attempt to replicate. I think we were going in two different directions there. No, no, it all comes together. Today, we are going to be looking at a relative rarity, which is a miniseries spinoff from Excalibur. Right. I mean, we used to have the Excalibur specials, which were kind of like annuals, but more expensive and perfect bound. But this is just a straight up miniseries. Right. This is Pride and Wisdom. As you may have suspected based on its title, stars Kitty Pride and Pete Wisdom of Excalibur. It was either that or a Jane Austen novel. No, no, I'm pretty sure that those have more contentious titles. And probably alliterative. It is a well-known fact that a young woman in possession of phasing powers must be in want of some asshole from the Secret Service. <laughs> I mean, I'd read it. Uh, in fact, we're kind of going to read it. So, yes, this is indeed a spinoff of Warren Ellis's run, of course, since it does feature as one of its two characters, Pete Wisdom. It takes place somewhere in the vicinity of the end of the run. Pete and Kitty are an established couple, but very clearly have not said I love you to one another, which was a plot point in Alice's last arc. Or possibly have once, but are refusing to do so again. I suppose that could be the case. But the point is, it doesn't really matter where it takes place continuity-wise. It's very standalone. Mostly, it's just them being fun characters in a fun, if very strange, plot. Well, nowhere near as fun as the average Jane Austen novel. So we haven't looked at Excalibur in a pretty long time. And while I feel like Kitty Pride is, is fairly well known as the original teenage member of, of the X-Men who sort of grew up, moved to the UK, has phasing powers, and is currently a member of uh, UK-based mostly mutant team Excalibur, Pete Wisdom's slightly more of a newcomer. What's his deal? So Pete is a chain-smoking, foul-mouthed, former spy with a heart of filthy, sort of, gold. Maybe pyrite? I don't know. 
But he used to be in a group called Black Air. They were bad guy government spies. He's tried to turn over a new tobacco leaf and is now on Excalibur himself trying to be a good person. He and Kitty have fallen in love despite their age gap. An age gap which, to his credit, I'm under the impression that Warren Ellis believed was significantly less than it actually was in the comics, because Kitty has been consistently drawn as looking way older than she's supposed to be. And if you're coming in without the specific, you know, date checks of the birthdays of hers that have been mentioned fairly early on, there's really not a good way to extrapolate that she's still as young as she is. Right. At this point, we can assume that Kitty is a young adult, but definitely an adult. Pete is somewhere in the vicinity of a decade older, so maybe a little weird, but you know, it's fine. We're just going to go with it. Interestingly, Claremont will not go with it. He's going to de-age her first chance he gets, and then re-age her? Kitty is inconsistent. Timelines and age in the Marvel Universe are inconsistent. I don't think we can limit that to Kitty. I feel like your possible options are Moppet, Young Teenager adult, and ageless cosmic entity. Yeah, but adult spans a couple specific groups and generations, because there's young enough to be cool adult, and then there's, like, adult adult. So which would, say, Banshee be? Banshee is an adult adult. He's still cool. Yeah, but he's not, like, young and hip cool. Oh, I suppose. He's just that grown-up with the beefy arms who will grill you burgers and who you know is just thinking about all the gloriously filthy things he's done with Moira McTaggart. The question is, would you be treated as ancient in a Final Fantasy game? Oh, right. Wasn't Orin from FF10 like 35 or something? I think he might have been even younger than that. I think he might have been in his early 30s. God damn it. We're old. Yeah, one of us is turning 40 next month. Oh, it's true. Strange feeling. But we digress, despite the fact that by that point, that one of us will probably almost certainly be too old to be in the X-Men unless he is Banshee and he's not as cool as Banshee, goddammit. The point is, let's talk about Pride and Wisdom, number one, Mystery School, written by Jane Austen, I mean Warren Ellis, penciled by Terry Dodson and Carl Story, inks by Aaron Lepresti, Jason Martin, Rachel Pinnock, and Tom Simmons, colored by Ariane Lenshoek, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So, Jay, what did you think about the art in this series? I think Dodson's fun on this particular flavor of book. I have mixed feelings about him on superhero stories, but for like one or two character focused, action oriented, but with also a lot of like talking head breaks type stories, basically exactly this tone of story. I think he's, he's, he's a really, really solid pick. I completely agree. I've mentioned before that his more modern work I'm not as into. It just tends to be too cheesecakey for my taste with the female characters. Here, it's great. And I think that Carl Story in this issue and, uh, who is it, Aaron Lepresti in the other issues, they work pretty well with Dodson's style. Like, you can tell when a page is one artist versus the other, but it's not jarring, even with the yeah. many, many inkers. Yeah, agreed. I, I think they are, the, the combinations are fairly smooth. There are a couple points in the third issue where it, it threw me a little bit, but um, got through two without really hitting there. I guess that kind of makes sense. I mean, when you have this many inkers, and even when you have more than one penciler, often that means a series is rushed. And my understanding is that if a series is rushed at the beginning, it's probably going to be even more rushed by the end. Well, that's the point where they're drawing and writing it at the same time. It gets kind of messy. Yeah, actually, you just buy a blank comic from the comic shop, and Warren Ellis and Terry Dodson are just chasing after you with pencils, scribbling in it as you walk. 
Yeah, the version that they have on Marvel Unlimited is just whatever someone happened to have around. So actually, depending on which copy of this you bought, you might have gotten a completely different ending. Artisanally crafted comic bookage. Well, no, it's like the Clue movie, like where, where the ending you got depended on the theater you saw it in. I love that concept so much, and I especially love the inevitable moment when a person who had seen one ending realized upon talking to a friend that, wait a minute, that's that's not the only ending? What? Listeners, you should know that we are absolutely lying about the comic series. We are telling the truth about the Clue movie. Yeah, that movie's great. You should see that movie. Uh, anyway, talking further about the art, and about the writing for that matter, so talking about a comic, I guess, the point is, page one is rad. There is a crackling skeleton with some kind of mottled red object inside its ribcage, and the narration... At dawn, on the bank of the River Thames, at ebb tide, something hisses to itself. Ellis is really good with using a little bit of language to imply a whole lot of atmosphere. I'm just really entertained at the idea of the skeleton just being like... Just happily hissing to itself there. Oh, that's adorable. Well, I mean, it's going to talk later. Uh, Spoiler for, you know, later in this episode. So, uh, that seems feasible. Cheerful hissing. It's not really something one thinks of. Although I guess it could be kind of a a logical um, Netflix closed caption based on the ones I've seen so far, which include things like portentous snuffling. Portentous snuffling? No, I just made that one up. I was going to say Sesame Street got dark. Did you hear that, um, I think Brett Goldstein's his name, from um, Ted Lasso is going to be on Sesame Street and is going to be in a garbage can with Oscar the Grouch? Never seen Ted Lasso. That means nothing to me. I'm sorry. Oh, he's a very he plays a very, very grumpy character. It's a perfect combination. Also, that show is great. Are they going to get married? I'm going to say yes. Good. So, in London... Kitty floats Pete Wisdom down from Excalibur's airship, the radically named Midnight Runner, and he's complaining about not having been able to smoke in the ship, about not being able to stop by a pub on the way to their mission. I'd say that Pete Wisdom's love language is complaining, but no, that's just kind of his language in general. Kitty is very kitty to the driver that meets the two of them. He'll have to excuse him, driver. When you get to his age, things get difficult. I'm his nurse. So for me, this is part of why the age difference feels pretty okay. Kitty is very aware of it, and it doesn't seem to imply any kind of a power differential. They feel very much like equals. I mean, in the context of Ellis' own behavior, certainly creepy. But as far as the characters, I feel fine about it. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Especially, again, if you can divorce it from Kitty's putative age within the comics. Totally. Which I think you really have to do for it to read okay. Oh, yeah. So, the reason they're in London is that they have been given a mission. Do you remember Mr. Jardine from the Dream Nails arc early in Ellis's run? I don't. I'm sorry. Well, that's fine. I actually had to look it up because I forgot who he was. The point is, he showed up, like, super briefly and gave Kitty and Pete some intelligence. He's an old intelligence buddy of Pete's. We found out in Dream Nails that uh, Mr. Jardine's daughter had been captured at one point and Pete took three bullets to save her. Well, once again, she has been captured. Are they bad enough dudes to rescue Mr. Jardine's daughter? I'm going to go ahead and say, yeah, they are probably bad enough dudes to rescue Mr. Jardine's daughter, at least based on the title of the series. Alas, their car immediately gets chased and shot at by sinister black cars. Well, okay, people inside sinister black cars. The cars are not, you know, shooting on their own. 
And their driver just throws himself out of the car once they start being shot at. So Pete you know, jumps into the front seat and takes the wheel. Um, they get a call on the 90s car phone saying, well, there's also a bomb in the car and it's going to go off at some point. And they're surrounded by civilians, so they can't stop there. And they're heading toward Tower Bridge, but the drawbridge is up. So they have to drive the car off the bridge before the car hits the water and explodes for some reason. Because there's a bomb in it. Well, right, but water's, you know, water. It's soothing. (laughs) Well, anyway. Some silences speak for themselves, Miles. Kitty phases them out of the car as the car falls and stays lighter than air, so they're fine. But this is an early statement of purpose. What if spy thriller, but with mutants? And I feel great about this. We've seen some of this in Wolverine at various points. The Gehenna Stone Affair kind of was like this, if a little more Indiana Jones-ish. But it's fun. Like, I really like when you take an established genre and you just throw X-Men characters into it. We've seen Kitty Pride in this specific genre, too, in the, the time travel story where... She and um, Rachel saved the universe with the power of gayness. You mean Weird War 3, that old Excalibur special? Yeah, exactly. I guess that's true. And of course, Pete is no stranger to spy stuff, so good choices, but still. So they get to Jardine's office, he gives them the details. Uh, Apparently what happened this time with his daughter Amanda going missing, well, she's a photojournalist, and she's trying to root out a serial killer that has been killing serials, and she's disappeared, so her dad is, like, super worried that she got serialed. And she's specifically gone undercover to do this. So the heroes, of course, agree to look into the case, and this is not just any serial killer thereafter. This serial killer is very likely a mutant, and the reason they believe that is because he has been killing people by instantly fossilizing them. So, you know, that's a whole thing. But nonetheless, they have to unpack and, you know, stick the Gideon Bible in, like, the lowermost drawers. They don't have to think about it. So they head to their hotel, and one of the most fun things about Kitty and Pete is their banter. This scene in this series, no exception. Nice hotel suite, Mr. Jardine got us. Great view. Can we go down to that park later? I told you, I don't like fresh air. Creep. Did room service bring you enough forms of poison, then? I told you, cigarettes and scotch are my food. Sometimes I wonder what I saw in you. Simple. My feet are warm in bed. Yours are like plates of ice. Only you got to imagine Pete with, like, the Britishest accent. Huh. Well, uh, it has been well established that my ability to do accents is terrible, so yes, that will be an exercise left to the reader. And alas, Matt's British accent filter is is on the fritz right now, so... So, our heroes, after bantering at their hotel, head to the obscure Department F-66, which they find out is also looking into this case. Department F-66 is called the Mystery School, and this is the Department of Unusual Death. They are, as far as I can tell, also a backdoor pitch for an independent series. Yeah, they're very much like the lone gunman from the X-Files. They are goofy, they are fun, they are very referential. And they also tell Kitty and Pete that the last visitors to this place got eaten by stoats. Invisible stoats. Oh man, I had to look up what a stoat was, and they don't look scary. I mean, I guess if they're invisible, they don't look like anything, but they're just like little cute weasels. Well, individually. Also, man, weasels are pretty vicious. They do not fuck around. Huh. 
I guess the algorithm just wanted to show me cute versions of weasels as opposed to terrifying versions of weasels. Oh, they're cute. They'll just also rip your throat out. Oh, okay, that's reasonable. Kind of like Gabby from All New Wolverine. Look, I read Sredni Vashtar very, very early and got pretty deeply traumatized by it. I was mostly traumatized by Minx from The Dark is Rising. That too. So, these folks are fun. Their boss is just a mustache guy named Chief Inspector Eccles, but the special agents are the inter- entertaining ones. We've got a John Constantine riff named Constance Johansson, who has a habit of getting all of her friends killed. I think we're on 200 and counting. She periodically just throws that into dialogue as a non-sequitur and talks about how depressed she is about it. It's great. We have a Dr. Strange riff named Inspector Strangefoot. Not magical, but, you know, uh, kind of dapper, like Dr. Strange. Bob, who wouldn't be that out of place on The Lone Gunman, as he is an accredited exorcist, forensic scientist, and self-proclaimed greatest power in the universe. Lovely chap, quite mad, terribly sad. Their designs are are really fun, though. Like, you know, Constance is based on Constantine, but she has that sort of sexy, disheveled smolder to her in the trench coat. Strangefoot's all well-mannered and arrogant and well-dressed. Bob has an Oasis shirt and long hair and little round glasses and is always very, very serious, and I love him. They reminded me intensely, and not for any single particularly good reason, of characters who would have been bit parts in Kill Your Boyfriend. Oh yeah, the old Grant Morrison comic. I remember that. We used to read that all the time in college. I still love that book. Do you remember who did the art on that? I liked the art. Uh, Philip Bond. Oh, well that was really good. Comic was a little dark for my tastes, but, you know, a lot of things are. Anyway... This department was formed to look into all these connections from the Jack the Ripper case back in the day, but the connections they mention are just ridiculous stretches, so I really like the idea that this is a department that exists to look into conspiracy theories that actually make no sense and help nothing. The Department of Shitty Paradolia. Yeah. That's what F-66 stands for. They're also really shitty at abbreviations. Yep. Shitty Paradolia and inaccurate acronyms. You could have an acronym for that. And if it were overly old-fashioned, it would be an anachronym. Anachronym! Ah, oh, nice. I'm so glad we podcast together, Jay. Anyway, the department helps Kitty and Pete look at pictures of the bodies of the victims that had been found, and also a skeleton that they found. Not photos of a skeleton, by the way, the actual skeleton. Oh yeah, they just have a skeleton on a table. And all of these have weird, unrecognizable letters carved into them. Nobody knows what the hell they are. But Pete knows someone who might. So it's time to meet Pete's family. Well, after a drive-by murder attempt from someone who fossilizes part of their car, so clearly they're on the killer's radar. Which leads us to... Pride and Wisdom number two, Mystery Walk. Written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Terry Johnson and Aaron Lepresti, inked by Aaron Lepresti, Jason Martin, Rachel Pinnock, and Tom Simmons, and colored by Ariane Lenschweck, with letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Meet Harold Wisdom. Elderly, belligerent, dressed in a nightshirt and slippers, and looking like a white-haired version of the DC Universe's cane to an extent that actually threw me off for a chunk of this issue based on some narrative stuff we learn later. Uh, yeah, for real. And Harold's house is is covered with spray-painted signs. Trust no one. JFK died for you. Stay away or die. Water is poison, etc. Harold is a die-hard conspiracy theorist, in his words. 
America is run by Freemasons who worship the A-bomb and kill JFK, according to ancient pagan ritual. But he's also a retired homicide detective specializing in serials, which is why they're there. Uh, like serial killers, not like Frosted Flakes. Or like long-running shows. Uh, yeah. You know, serial disambiguation, as opposed to serial disambiguation, which was, is when you disambiguate over and over. Which is what we do. It's true. We are serial disambiguators. So in, in, in typical noir style, I could save everyone except the woman I loved um, fashion, Pete's mother was actually murdered by a spree killer who walked into town and opened fire. She had been sitting by a window, and Pete is going to explain to Kitty a little bit later that his mother was specifically sitting and waiting for Pete to visit. They'd had a falling out over the phone, and he was supposed to come see her but skipped because he was mad. And if she hadn't been waiting for him, she wouldn't have been by the window, etc. And we get the impression that that's kind of what turned Harold into the Harold that he now is, this guy who's a little bit divorced from reality. And I don't know, this is strange. I don't know how to feel about Harold because he's clearly played for comic relief a lot of the time. And it feels kind of weird to laugh at somebody who's either senile or mentally ill or some combination of both. But at the same time, the character is legitimately a great deal of fun and is good enough at what he does that he clearly has some agency. I don't know. See, given the Marvel Universe and Pete's background, my impression was that he's supposed to be one of those conspiracy theorists who you don't know is necessarily wrong. I mean, obviously, some of the stuff like is is off, like water is, is not generally poison, but... He's sharp enough that, like, it kind of makes you wonder about his weirdness. And he's sharp enough, too, to come to some conclusions about the killer. Specifically, he's religiously motivated, trying to communicate something. There's no fury in what they're doing. Like, what they're trying to send a message to someone. And the symbols are illegible, but, they, but Pete's sister can probably read those. And we'll get to her... But meanwhile, in a pub named Drones Club, presumably because it is both useful and annoying... The killer sees a girl reading a book called Angels and offers to buy her a drink. Now, the killer has so far just killed basically religious figures or people who, who were known to be deeply faithful. So, bad sign. And this being a mystery comic, we don't really see the killer. Uh, although, actually, the killer should have looked closer as well because the woman's actually reading the novelization of the 1994 family film Angels in the Outfield, so it's really only vaguely related. Yeah, but she's praying to it. Oh, weird choice. Back at the hotel, Kitty discovers that their door is wired with a bomb. And of course she phases through it, and of course she's the one to think to check. I really enjoy that Kitty is experienced enough with super stuff to notice that the keycard they put into the lock triple clicks instead of single clicking, and to know what to do with it. Again, that's something that really works in Kitty and Pete's relationship. Yeah, Pete's the one who's been a spy for years— but they're equal partners. She's not just along for the ride. She's not, you know, the innocent who's learning the ropes. Like, no, they take care of each other pretty much 50-50. One of the things that bugs me in this series is that neither of their skills really actually ends up contributing much to the larger plot. That is true. Mostly they go around being cool and competent in somewhat unrelated directions to what's really going on. And then stuff happens anyway. In this case, the stuff that happens is that once they fail to set off the bomb, they are attacked by a bunch of men in black, you know, full suits, sunglasses, etc. And these guys are armed with inhibitor guns, which will take out their powers if they are hit. Um, and Pete and Kitty manage to take the lot down, but the last several of the guys actually kill themselves 
with what still appear to be inhibitor guns. And if that doesn't make sense to you and you're thinking that's probably a continuity error, you are mistaken because it is it is weird, um, but it is contextually weird to the point that Pete and Kitty actually comment on it. And we're going to find out the reason for it later. Okay, speaking of continuity errors or otherwise, my understanding was that mutant power inhibiting guns like the one that Forge built that took away Storm's powers way back in the day were extremely rare that after that happened, Forge made sure that nobody could get to them. So I kind of have to wonder how these folks got a hold of theirs. Which itself is also accounted for later in continuity. Well done, miniseries. See, my question is how Kitty so easily recognized them. I don't know. She's buds with Storm. Maybe Storm told her about her no good, very bad day that one time. No good, very bad several issues. Uh, many, many issues. Hey, they led to life death, and that was phenomenal. Later that night, Kitty and Peter making out when they are interrupted by Pete's sister, Romany. Um, and they're making out in the hotel room, where they have for some reason decided to remain, despite it being wired with a bomb and then attacked by, you know, strangers. They're like, oh yeah, this is a safe place to sleep, let's stay here. Oh, it's fine, they put a sock on the doorknob, nobody will bug them. I guess except Romany. And in all fairness, no one wants to see Pete Wisdom doing that. Oh, yeah, for real. But yes, Brit- uh, speaking of 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 um, Pete's sister's name, yes, British people sometimes name their kids Romany, and yes, it's as culturally inappropriate in context as you might think it is. Curses. Romany is a cool character, though. She is fun. She's a little wacky, like Harold. Uh, she mentions at one point that while she used to channel an Atlantean priest uh, and spin and vomit to figure things out, she stopped doing so because people stopped inviting her out. One of the little details that comes up that I enjoy is that Pete is the black sheep of the family, not because he's a jerk who's made mostly of alcohol and cigarettes, but because he works in normal intelligence instead of supernatural wacky conspiracy intelligence. Oh, he absolutely works works in supernatural wacky conspiracy intelligence. That's what Black Air does. Yeah, but they're all, like, solemn about it, and there's not a lot of spinning and vomiting and water being poisoned and that sort of thing. I mean, his dad was a regular cop. Yeah, un- until. Uh, I guess that is true. I mean, his dad did start out as a regular detective, and Romany, well, Romany's just Romany. So she recognizes the markings on the skeleton as alchemical, and she wants to see the originals. So they had to head to F66, and she's able to determine that the skeleton is an alchemical manstone, a human soul, body, and spirit basically separated and reconnected magically. Do you remember that old video game that we learned about in college? Uh, I Cho Anarchy, I think it was called, about the about the burly, mostly naked dudes who shot lasers out of their head. And like the video that we saw it in, the, the video reviewer guy kept just yelling man's beam whenever that happened. I do remember that. So yeah, every time anybody said manstone in this, I just read it in my head as manstone! Anyway... This manstone is designed to find something, which they, they determine by reactivating it by, by completing one of the partially rubbed out characters on it. It is so creepy. The skeleton just keeps saying, I feel, I feel, I, I feel so good. What do you want to know? Like, it is genuinely chilling, this expressionless, fleshless skeleton. I, I think you found a lot of things, like, portentous and creepy in this that I just found kind of funny. I don't know, I'd be pretty weirded out if a skeleton started talking about how good it felt after it had its body and soul alchemically separated and reattached into a manstone. 
Would you feel less weird if it was wailing or something? Why shouldn't it feel good? I mean, I'm glad it feels good. I guess if it felt any better, it would start playing its ribs like the xylophone. She mentions that it's a theoretically perfect form. Oh, so we should all be so lucky as to be that skeleton. Apparently. Oh, uh, serial killer guy? No, actually, don't call me. No, I don't think I'm into this. I changed my mind. No. She, she does specify that, that the steps to making a manstone do technically qualify as murder, so yeah, might not want to go down that route. Now, the markings on the other bodies, though, the markings on the petrified bodies are not actually alchemical. They're Enochian. That's the language of angels. And Romani concludes that the killer is writing a letter to God, whom he believes is his grandfather, because the killer believes himself to be Cain, and he's writing to apologize for killing his brother. So, that that's a thing? Okay. See, this was the part where Pete's dad's hair really threw me for a loop. Right, since he looks like the Sandman version of Kane, the first killer. But nope, unrelated, he just happens to have that hair. You know, come to think of it, that hair is kind of like Wolverine's hair, and Beast's hair, and Star Fox's hair, and Quicksilver's hair, and Magneto's hair. No, but none of those guys have beards, and none of them are specifically balding in that pattern as well. I suppose that's true. Okay, so if Wolverine kind of, like, messed with his facial hair and had male pattern baldness, then he would look like Kane. In a specific pattern, and if his, his face were much more angular. Oh, okay. Well, uh, it's a bit of a stretch, but then again, so are a lot of Wolverine stories. You remember Romulus? Like, anything about Romulus? Would that I didn't. Would that it were so simple. Trippingly. Anyway... As soon as the members of F-66 hear this, um, that, that the killer thinks he's Kane, they sprint for the nearest pub with absolutely no explanation. Clearly, they know who the killer is, but waiting at the pub is someone else completely. And this is a woman with red streaks in her hair, who we saw briefly, briefly, briefly in the first issue. And she tells everyone, well, you can't catch the killer or I'll kill you. Which takes us to the finale, Pride and Wisdom number three, Mystery Train, written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Terry Dodson and Aaron Lepresti, as you walk away from the comic store, inked by Aaron Lepresti, Jason Martin, Rachel Pinnock, Tom Simmons, and Gary Martin, colored by Arian Lenchowak, and lettered by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft. So this lady, she's got a leather outfit, she's got a red streak, she trains a gun on our heroes, and explains she is a mutant. She is also an alchemist herself, and uh, she must have done a really recent job bleaching and dyeing that streak into her hair. Like, I had a red streak in my very dark hair in college, and it was cool, but it took a ton of bleach, and it went orange very quickly. Uh, I, I recall that you did that. You did a good job. You know what her secret is, Miles? What? She's a comic book character. Oh. Well, I figured maybe that was her mutant power, having red dye not disappear in, like, two days in her hair. Do they specify at any point what her mutant power is? I'm not sure they do. I'm not sure that they do. We never learn her name, and I don't think we learn her mutant power. I could be wrong. But she mentions that she is very long-lived, so I guess I assume that ties into her mutant power somehow. And she's been studying mutants for decades. She could have been the British Xavier if she wanted, but she thinks that mutants are safer in private. And definitely mutants being out and about in America, uh, that's part of why we've seen some characters in Excalibur say— Mutants have been so oppressed after Onslaught, whereas in Britain they've gotten off uh, significantly easier. 
And she has been trying to stop the heroes this whole time. In fact, she is the one who wired a bomb to their hotel room, and she created the men in black who attacked them um, by transmuting human waste. Wait, like, whose? Her own? Or did she, did she steal some? And really, which would be grosser? God, I don't know. She also created those uh, anti-mutant power guns out of uh, alchemical stuff. So, uh, yeah, she didn't have to get them from Forge. She was also the one who made the manstone to find the killer to figure out who he was. At this point, F-66 pipe up and are like, yeah, we know who the killer is. It's it's our co-worker. His name is John Gideon. Uh, sorry, guys. We have, in fact, seen John Gideon once before in this miniseries, very, very briefly. Kitty and Peter run into him on their way into F-66. He's the one, in fact, who tells them that the last visitor was eaten by invisible stoats. He's in about two panels, and he mentions that he's on medical leave but got called in to help with something. And as it turns out, the reason he's been on medical leave is he believes himself to be Cain. Yeah, and the reason he's in the mystery school is because due to his father's connections, he was never going to lose his job working for the police, but they wanted to put him somewhere out of the way because he was very, very violent, like some major police brutality going on, presumably related to the whole Kane thing. He is not an okay person. No, no, and um, he had called that day to say that he wouldn't be coming in because he had just met a girl at a pub. Can you... Can you call in for that reason? Could I just call into work and say, hey, boss, sorry, if I met a cute person. I'm going to see if I can, you know, have some fun instead of actually doing my job. I mean, apparently, if you're John Gideon, you can. What gets me is that they jumped from met a girl at a pub to must be at this specific pub. I mean, it is London. Like, how many pubs are there? Two? I think at least, like, three or four. Oh. Pretty big city. Unless you ask a uh, gully dwarf then it's no more than two yeah that pretty much covers it thankfully pete is very good at distracting people by being a general threatening ass and so he does so to the street-haired lady while kitty sneaks up and knocks her the fuck out as usual being the muscle of the couple i mean remember she has literal ninja training from the kitty pride and wolverine miniseries yeah, that's the last we'll see of her, except uh, briefly when she shows up and get a- gets arrested. Like, that's it. There's there's no bigger story with her. Huh. So you could say that she is a red-streaked herring. You could, but you wouldn't. Well, you wouldn't. Anyway, everyone heads off to Gideon's apartment, which is literally in the shadow of a church because this dude loves his symbolism. Kitty and Pete are Kitty and Pete. What do we do once I've phased us through? The usual... Make it up as we go along. Amanda is, in fact, inside, and yes, she was the woman in the pub reading the book on angels to set herself up as bait. But she's not the only one who has made their way to Gideon's apartment. Um, Also inside is Harold, still in his nightshirt, with a gun trained on Gideon. He He memorized the information in the file that Kitty and Pete showed him and used it on his own to develop a profile and track down the killer. Well done, Harold. I appreciate that he's still in his nightshirt, though. It's a pretty good nightshirt. Doesn't look very clean. He probably smells terrible. Pete does his best to defuse the situation. I mean, this guy's a serial killer who can fossilize people by touching them, this John Gideon. And his dad is a good detective, yeah, but he's old and not terribly spry. 
Can I briefly express my deep frustration that this series nonstop says fossilize when it clearly means petrify? Oh god, you're totally right. Yeah, what the hell? Consternation. Fair. Fair. And this all turns into a family argument in the heat of this dangerous situation, an ugly family argument. Harold says for the first time to Pete that he knows why his wife, Pete's mother, was at the window, and he blames Pete for it. And Pete just sort of takes it until Kitty jumps in and brings up something we hadn't heard, which is that she wonders if Harold knows that the argument Pete and his mom had 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 been one where Pete's mom said that she'd never loved or wanted Pete. Unfortunately, that throws Harold off for long enough for Gideon to jump in and petrify his arm. But not before giving us a beautiful close-up of Harold's face, just softening and going blank as he listens to this. It's There's some good emotional storytelling within this action scene, and I love that combination. That is some deft panel construction and deft pacing. Pete, meanwhile punches the hell out of Gideon. He is not pleased about this whole situation, but his punchathon is interrupted by the streak-haired lady's gunshot. Oh yeah, she does she does th- show up, but she just shows up and like does some fighting and then gets arrested. I again, she's set up as this really really important figure and then there's no payoff. Yeah, Harold shoots her in the shoulder with his good arm and she falls over. Uh, Gideon takes this opportunity to run the hell away, realizing that his are you there, God, it's me, Gideon plan is going poorly. He flees into the tube. Kitty is corrected when she calls it the subway. It's called the tube. Now, I also know that. You know what's really disappointing about the, the tube? What? It's not actually an enormous habit trail. Oh, man! Like, so you couldn't just have big hamsters go through it? Or it couldn't be, like, a pneumatic tube, and you get into the tube car, and you just go, loop, and then you're at your destination? Nope. Oh, damn it, England. Why you gotta be like that? Also, all the colonialism. I object to both of those things. Got some problems. So Kitty, yeah, Kitty is just our action hero here. Like, Pete has been shot, he's down for the count— But she's got phasing powers, she's got ninja training, she's got an incredible superhero career behind her, spanning back to when she was 13, which, at least in this comic, was quite a while ago. She's also got a hell of a heart, because she just wants to get Gideon help. He just wants to finish his letter to God, and he's petrified the train car during their fight, and another train is bearing down on them, and um, Kitty tries to save him, but he doesn't let her. And she figures, well, that's that, she says. I guess he can ask for forgiveness in person now. This whole climactic scene is propulsive. There's the standoff with its emotional intensity, the family argument. There's Kitty's one-on-one with Gideon, her realizing that, you know, if she touches him to phase him out of the path of this oncoming train, she might lose an arm. It's very much like a successful action movie. Alice is good at this. The art team is good at this. I'm actually reminded of Global Frequency, which felt like an excellent spy-slash-action thriller from start to finish. That was another Warren Ellis series. So that's it. The streak-haired lady is arrested. We still don't know her name or her mutant power except for being old. Harold is gonna lose his arm, but he's fine with that. It had warts anyway. Romany and Pete briefly, grumpily—well, Pete more grumpily—bond and say they love each other. And Romany tells Kitty that Pete's actually been secretly paying Harold's rent all these years, despite having a terrible relationship with him. Which is a pretty Pete wisdom MO. It totally is, yeah. No, he uh, doesn't really care about being seen as the good guy, he just wants to do the right thing, which, you know, respect. 
and we'll actually see more of Romany later, kind of a lot more. There's going to be a more spy-ish run of X-Force in 2000-2001, thereabouts, like the Counter-X uh, line that Marvel did for some of its less successful X-Comics at the time. But weirdly, she's going to be very, very altered. The first time she shows up, she just looks like a generic old lady. After that, though, she's this very hard, sharp, blonde woman who has all these spy skills, as opposed to just being kind of a wacky lady who knows a lot about mystical stuff and spins around and vomits sometimes. Uh, She'll also be a major character in the late 90s Union Jack comic. She's Union Jack's girlfriend, so... Weirdly, this character that we barely see here, who is admittedly delightful, uh, is going to show up kind of a lot. Huh. Yeah. I don't know if we'll ever get around to reading Union Jack. Uh, Maybe it's on Marvel Unlimited? I don't know. I still have hundreds of Star Wars issues to go before I have free comics time. And that takes us to our denouement. Back at the hotel, Kitty's being all sexy at Pete and joking that it's his turn to meet her family, as awkward as that's going to be. At which point he grabs her by the neck and says he has to punish her now, and that's the ending beat of the series, and it does not land with the levity that it's clearly intended to. Oh, goddammit. Okay, Warren Ellis is usually not great at endings in this run of Excalibur, but but this, like, I know it's supposed to be funny or or sexy, but no. So, okay, there was this kung fu movie with Sammo Hung called Close Encounters of the Spooky Kind. I think it's also called Scared Stiff. Um, but it's a really fun slapstick kung fu movie involving hopping vampires, which are my favorite vampires, until, like, two seconds before the credits roll, where suddenly there's just this domestic violence played for laughs. It's like, no, movie, you were doing so well, you just had to not do that thing for, like, two more seconds, and it all would have been great. And I kind of feel that way about this last page. Yeah, it's, it's just a baffling choice on every front. So, last page aside, I mean, we both feel the same about that, but what do you think of the series overall? I think it starts out promising and goes steadily downhill. It's got a lot of cool concepts, it's got a lot of cool characters. It never quite comes together as a mystery story in which there's anything interesting to figure out, or in which our protagonists actually do much that's significant. Yeah, and that can work. I mean, I'm thinking Big Trouble in Little China, but that really only works if you want to play your protagonists for laughs. And I don't think that's the intention of this series. Like, it wants us to be impressed with Kitty and Pete. And by and large, we are, just not really around the central mystery that is not so much a mystery. What it feels to me very much like is a non-superhero story with the serial numbers filed off. Yeah, yeah, that could very well be. I don't know, I feel like... If you just focused it a little more, like, the lady with the red streak in her hair, I think you could merge her into John Gideon very easily, just have them be one character. Really? I think so, yeah. You know, John Gideon could be watching mutants as well and have some conspiracy theory about the angel thing. You know, it would kind of turn out he was right. I mean, angel was descended from a race of actual angel people in the Chuck Austin run. See, I don't know. I think you'd want to keep those as separate characters, and I think you'd want to basically expand it to six issues to make it run right. That could work, yeah. That would also give us more room for some of the supporting cast, who are all very promising. We just didn't get to see a ton of them. It would give us give it space for the mystery to actually unfold as a mystery rather than just details that get thrown at the reader. But the action stuff, the thriller stuff, 
that I do enjoy. That is really fun, and I think a lot of credit there goes to the art team, which, again, with that many pencilers and that many inkers, that is no mean feat, so I am damn impressed with all that. I, I think we need to give that editorial team some love there, too, for making that all cohesive. Unfortunately, however, they lose all of those points for that final page. God damn it. So yeah, there you go. Uh, we have now covered all of Ellis's Excalibur and Excalibur spinoffs. We will soon move on to the next run of Excalibur, which is a run of comics. Meanwhile, you've got questions. Rumbler Fumbler asks on Tumblr, Whatever happened to Storm and Magic's bond? I feel like Storm was one of the most important characters in Magic's life by the end of her miniseries, but even the Claremont run seemed to drop that connection fairly early. Was that a case of redundancy because of Storm and Kitty's relationship? Was it forgotten by the writers? Or has it actually come up since then and I just don't know about it? So... It may be that last part. It may have come up, and maybe I don't know about it either. But yeah, to my recollection, there's not really much there. Of course, like you alluded to, in the Storm and Ilyana magic miniseries, a version of Storm in Limbo is Ilyana's kind of white magic teacher, as opposed to the black magic from Belasco, and they're super, super tight. I mean, Storm's name is right there in the title of the miniseries. But remember... That is not Earth-616 Storm. That is a version of Storm who, along with a lot of the other X-Men, got stuck in limbo in a slightly alternate timeline. So the 616 Storm, I don't think she remembers any of that. And I can totally see Ilyana being the kind of character who wouldn't want to be vulnerable by reaching out and worrying that she would be needy by saying, hey, we were really tight. I know you don't know me very well, but uh, you want to hang out? You want to get ice cream? Yeah, I agree. That was pretty much the point that I would have, I, I came to on this question as well. They have been around each other a fair bit. I mean, they were two members of Kieran Gillen's Extinction team a while back, but their bond didn't really seem to be anything particularly focal. That was an era where Ilyana's soul was uh, even more messed up, but even so. Uh, now, Ilyana did meet up with an ancestor of Storms in a Mystic Arcana one-shot, but again, that's that's indirect. That said, there are so many good friendships that have been dropped over the years. I'm thinking Rogue and Iceman, Gene and Polaris, Havoc and Dazzler, Boom Boom and Richter. I would love to see some of those come back, especially in the current era where everybody's basically in one place. Of course, the downside there is that with everybody in one place, it's hard to choose who to focus on. But but still, those are fun. Mm, Psylocke and Colossus, too. Think of that Australia era. You're absolutely right, yeah. That's the thing, like, I mean... It's been so long since that one was focused on that I had kind of forgotten it was a thing. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, In a given year, how many days out of 365 will be good days for Scott Summers? So the problem is the Krakoan era has totally messed up my usual math on this front. Up until that point, assuming 365 days of publication, um, you know, a, a year of published comics, usually one. Okay, yeah, because we would give that war that award to one scene every year in our winter special. And there usually wasn't really more than one contending for it. I mean, I guess in the current era, Scott's in a rough spot at the moment, but one, that's like this week's issue and the last one, so I can't really uh, go into details for fear of spoilers. And two, it's not that rough compared to, you know, orphanage brainwashing or whatever. Well, and he's had a really good year. He has had a really good year. Good couple of years. So, uh, well done, Scott Summers. I hope the Krakoan era lasts for long enough for you to build up a bank of good days to account for the probably cavalcade of terrible ones that will follow. 
We are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. The microphone today goes to Sexy Dracula. Now I remember why I, Dracula, stayed so briefly in London the last time I visited. A resident tries to write a letter to God? by turning his victims to stone and sculpting Enochian letters into them like a schoolboy carving Slayer into his desk. Ha! Where is the passion? Where is the intensity? Now, Justin Elliott, we both know that to commune with our equivalence to God, stone is a poor canvas. We need flesh. Supple eager and desperate flesh, that the words we trace with nail and fang meet with the quivering spirituality that only desire can bring. Any madman can seduce a brick. And Bob Prohl, you are no stranger to the written word, but surely you know that the flow of ink, or blood, lends itself to far more nuance than the clumsy marks of a chisel ever could. To draw out the stroke of a pen or the streak of pulsing red to connect to the power beyond this world. A letter to God from London? No. Justin and Bob, come to Castle Sexy Dracula, and we shall reach hell itself with true epistolary ferocity. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Jane Austen alongside Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com and more of Jane's work all over the internet and bookstores near you. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn and a list of eligible bachelors in your neighborhood. Our show is 100% listener and Mr. Darcy supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform, because it really helps. We're off next week, but we'll be back in two with Space Adventures. As the Shi'ar and the Silver Surfer get up to some nonsense. Nonsense.